0: And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox.
1: Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where week in and week out, we work our fingers to the bone to make sure you get the information and inspiration you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. Gosh, it feels like we've been talking about the market a lot lately. For like the last almost year now and the changes in the market and how it affects different strategies. But today we're going to talk about the market. We're going to look at leading indicator statistics, things that you probably haven't read in the paper unless you happen to be, I don't know, subscribing to some professional journals of some sort that, uh, uh, we can, we can look at it and maybe kind of see what some of the challenges and opportunities coming up in the market are here today to uh, discuss this with us is Rick Sharga, who is the founder and CEO of the CJ Patrick Company. Now, you, you might be going, I know that name. I know that name. Why do I know that name? You know that name because you have seen it quoted in a thousand newspaper articles, uh, on the radio, on TV. Rick has been for 20 years doing market intelligence and advisory work for real estate and mortgage companies. Uh, his most recent roles were at Adam Data, if that sounds familiar to you. Realty Track, that was where I first ran across him years and years ago. He's... Uh, also been in the role of Chief Marketing Officer at Auction.com, which is a company a lot of us are familiar, f- familiar with. That was a Cincinnati thing to add that f- R to familiar. Familiar. <laughs> but you take it out a mirror. That's just a mirror, right? And put it in the f- familiar. Anyway, joining us by phone today is Rick Sharga. Rick, welcome to Real Life Real Real Estate.
2: Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the
1: conversation. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. I'm I'm really grateful that you took the time today to uh, join us because those of us in the what I call the small real estate investing world, folks who, you know, have one to maybe as many as a 100 single family homes who do, you know, 10 wholesale deals a year, 10 retail deals a year don't have access to the same data you do about the real estate market and so we're kind of left talking to each other about what it is we're seeing in the world and and sort of um uh, reading what's in the newspaper which isn't always isn't always uh completely objective uh information and uh it's going to be it's going to be good to hear somebody who's been doing this for many many years uh, talk about some of the, some of the lesser known, but very important statistics that are happening out there. But I, I, I think we should start, Rick, by talking to listeners about the whole lies, damn lies and statistics thing. Because <laughs> a, a lot of the, a lot of the things that, that I read in the mainstream media is, somewhat misleading at best and actually politically motivated at worst. And I think it's important that we take a close look at who is saying the thing and then also ask ourselves where are they getting their numbers and do they make like common sense?
2: Yeah, no, you're, you're right. There's, there's a lot of misinformation out there and, it ranges from large media outlets uh, who are reporting on on bad information that they're given, uh, and, and I, I don't think have much of an ulterior motive, to snake oil salesmen who are on YouTube, uh, breathlessly predicting the end of the world as you know it. But you know, you'll be one of the survivors if you pay them four thousand dollars for their special course. So it there, there's, I, I, you and I were trading notes before today's conversation, and. One of the things that was driving me absolutely crazy uh, as we entered the pandemic uh, was all of the stories that were, were predicting 20, 30, 40 million uh, evictions from people who were going to be thrown out of their, their rental units or, or thrown out of their homes as part of a foreclosure. Um, and there was, there was absolutely no data behind any of these numbers. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was rampant speculation, and it was reported as if it were real. And I finally had to sit one reporter down and say, really, if, if 30 million people were evicted from their homes tomorrow, do you think the eviction itself would be the big problem, or do you think it would be the rioting in the streets that would be the big problem? Um, and, and, and you know, even at the worst of the foreclosure crisis back in the Great Recession, you, you had nothing even remotely approaching those kind of numbers. So. You do have to be careful what what you read, and 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 you have to take a look at what those sources are um, when when you're reading or or listening to that kind of information. But
0: uh, no,
2: happy to to spend some time with you today trying to set the record straight and taking a look behind some of the numbers if we can.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, um, very much, very much looking forward to that. And we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about actually a lot of different numbers. Some some kind of in the bigger economy because. Again, if you're on social media or Twitter or YouTube, there's people saying we're in a full on recession and millions will lose their jobs and the real estate market is going to have a crash. Unlike we've ever seen, it will make 2006 look like a walk in the park and other people saying No, the economy is great. And the bigger economy affects what we do as well. It affects whether people can buy homes or want to sell homes or can afford to rent homes. And we're also going to dig into some things like the current foreclosure numbers post the pandemic and the foreclosure moratorium. But first, we are going to take a quick break and we're going to invite listeners who have questions for Rick, who, by the way, he studies this a lot. He doesn't have a crystal ball, you guys. Don't be like, exactly how much your house price is going to drop in Cincinnati, Ohio. But uh, if you have questions about the stuff you've been hearing, uh, you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Or you can send an email. Just send it to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to Rick Sharga, who seems to have spent most of his professional life looking at charts and graphs and numbers and telling folks in the real estate and, uh, mortgage worlds what those might mean for the immediate and long-term future. And, um, Rick, can we, can we just Start by talking about just the the whole overall economy, and because we you know those of us in the business we we know that if tenants lose their jobs or are in danger of losing their jobs they can't pay, and if people feel like they're losing their jobs they don't feel like making a big investment like a house. So, jobs wise, are are we are we good, bad, going up, going down, indifferent? Don't know.
2: Uh, no, not 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 indifferent, and not don't know. We're we're very strong uh, in terms of jobs right now. Almost no matter how you look at it, um, number of, number of jobs filled in the last report, uh, a, a half a million, uh, which is off the charts. Um, and now one hundred and twenty eight thousand of those happen to be in the service sector, uh, restaurants, retail, hospitality, entertainment, things like that. Uh, and so a lot of those are probably jobs that haven't been filled since the pandemic hit. Uh, employers have been having a hard time. But what's, what's fascinating uh, are, are two things, really. One, we still have about one and a half jobs open for every individual who's looking.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a very unusual circumstance in, in our economy and shows just how strong the jobs market is. And the other, anecdotally, you know, you're reading about a lot of these tech companies having massive layoffs. Amazon and and Google and Facebook and the like. And what's what's interesting is is what I'm hearing, and I don't have hard data to back this up, but I think it's kind of buried in the unemployment numbers, is a lot of these tech workers are finding a job in a couple weeks. So it's not like they're going from working at Facebook to working at Walmart.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, They're taking their Facebook uh, credentials and going to work in a technology position for a company who's been trying to hire somebody like that for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So it's it's uh, a very resilient economy. Our unemployment rate is the lowest today that it's been since 1969. Mm. Um, And it's just it's just a remarkable, remarkable recovery. When you realize that when the government shutdown happened, when the pandemic was declared, we lost 22 million jobs literally overnight. Uh, and And we regained all those plus some in the in the ensuing two years mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah that that is interesting because on um, on the flip side, what we're hearing from people who are trying to employ uh service people but also just in the real estate business, people like property managers, people like mm-hmm. acquisitions coordinators is Job hunters are, uh, either s- just not there <laughs> or they're not showing up for appointments or they're, you know, staying for three days and leaving. So, so it, there seems to be a lot more turnover in the job world than there was before the pandemic. And it, it, there's also, of course, this, this idea of the great resignation. There's just been a humongous number of people uh, who are ten years too young to officially retire? <laughs> who officially <Yep>. retired <laughs> and don't don't plan to go at least back to a regular day job? What what is what is going on with these people? Are they are they sitting around playing video games? Are they starting their own businesses? Are they just living off of savings? Like where, where are all of our employees?
2: That's a really good question. The, the labor there's another statistic called the labor force participation rate. And it's what percentage of able-bodied results are either in the workforce or looking for work. And that dropped pretty sharply during the pandemic um,
3: and, and has not
2: fully recovered. Now, you, you, you categorize it really well, though. If you look at prime employment age, ages 25 to 54, that participation rate has pretty much regained where it was prior to the pandemic but younger than 25 and older than 54 those numbers have not come back so on the one hand we probably have young adults staying in school longer or just kind of moving along with various part-time jobs or gig gig kind of jobs you know driving uber or doordash uh, while they figure out what they want to do when they grow up and a lot of the older folks um, uh, you know the, the, the 55 plus folks have probably decided, you know what, I, I kind of didn't mind this break from corporate America. So maybe I'll open up my own little consulting business. Um, maybe I'll do some stuff part-time, but I'm not going back to the rat race. And and we, we have seen seen a lot of that. The other thing I think you, you categorized um, in, in how you describe the difficulty people are have finding particular types of employees is there seems to be a bit of a mismatch really across the country, uh, and, and certainly in the real estate market, in terms of skill sets and, and people that are available to, to fill those particular positions. Um, you know, I, I don't know that there are a ton of property managers out there with 10 years of experience who are sitting on the sidelines just waiting for the right opportunity. So uh, we, we have geographic skews where we have, you know, jobs in one state and employees in another. We have skill set um, mismatches in, in that specific jobs don't have people that are ready to fill them. And I, I think it's going to take a while for all of this to settle down. But in the meanwhile, the people that are employed are seeing their wages go up four and five percent a year, which is, you know, about as healthy uh, a wage increase as, as you can uh, you can imagine. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the the jobs market is still very strong.
1: So wages are increasing because that's always a big political Football is, you know, people aren't making any more money than they did 10 years ago. But if, you're, if, four, if your wages increased 5% last year and inflation was 9%,
2: <laughs> so you are still, you're still, you're still lost at the end of the day. The, the, the other thing that's interesting about wage growth, though, and, and this should keep the politicians reasonably satisfied, is most of the wage growth is actually at the lower end of the wage scale. The people at the upper end aren't seeing that much of an increase. Now, they did very well during the pandemic. It was kind of a a two-tier recovery where your your more professional workers actually did really well, and a lot of the the hourly folks didn't do well at all. But a lot of the increase right now is at the low end of the wage scale, which, um, to your point, still isn't helping people make ends meet when inflation is running higher than wage growth but is is different than previous cycles when most of the gains were people that were already making a lot of money. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. I can tell you that uh, in Cincinnati, Ohio, the uh $15 minimum wage, the market took care of that. The McDonald's across the street from, uh, from our, from my office is paying $15 an hour to start with like guaranteed yep. raises after, after eight weeks. So, um yeah it's it's amazing what uh what what supply and demand will do <laughs> you, supply well, demand. I, I
2: remember fast food I remember fast food places uh, offering signing bonuses of, of a couple thousand dollars yeah. uh it just you know things that you never thought you would see but but when there's a worker shortage and you have a need uh you you pay what what the market demands and and candidly that's one of the things the federal Reserve is a little bit concerned about is is wage growth could lead to to wage inflation, which uh, again doesn't doesn't help get the overall inflation numbers down uh, to where you know we we'd like them to be as a, a country, and certainly the fiscal policymakers would like to see uh, see in the future.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, at the same time, uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of really breathless uh, stories in the media in in 2020 about how. Uh, consumer savings were an all-time high, and credit card debt had dropped enormously, but in the face of all this well, we inflation...
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, in the face of all this inflation and everything, that trend seems to have reversed itself again.
2: Yeah, if you're looking for red flags, there, there are a, a number of them around. Um, we saw, we saw in, in November and December record credit usage by consumers, uh, so after after kind of minding their P's and Q's for a while, we saw consumers start to tap in heavily to credit card usage. My concern about that is uh, the, the implication is that a lot of these households are using credit cards to make ends meet. You know, we've seen that kind of movie before. It typically doesn't have a very happy ending. Uh, we saw savings rates go from all-time highs to below normal levels as people were tapping into their savings. Uh, So, again, if you're looking at households at, at, you know, the the median income or at lower incomes, uh, inflation had been running as high as eight or nine percent. And that didn't really reflect what was happening to those households because government inflation numbers don't include little things like food and gasoline. Mm -hmm.
3: Um,
2: And and the inflation on those things has been much higher. And and those households uh, at the lower end of the the, the wage uh, spectrum tend to spend a higher percentage of their income on those kind of necessities. So this high-income,
3: excuse
2: me, high-inflation environment has been much tougher on those kind of households than on others, and probably not surprisingly, we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick in credit delinquencies, whether it's um, credit cards, whether it's um, auto loans. Uh, We're we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick from what had been very low levels of delinquency Mm -hmm, rates.
1: Mm-hmm. So, at the same time, it looks like inflation might have actually
2: peaked. I think inflation has peaked for this cycle. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying that. Uh, yesterday's inflation numbers were not extraordinarily good, but they weren't bad. And they were at least continuing to head in the right direction. Uh, maybe not as fast as the Federal Reserve would like, but but moving in the right direction. So I I do believe what the Fed has done, um, unprecedented aggressive behavior by the Federal Reserve, uh, is having the desired effect. I I wish the Fed were using current housing numbers instead of year-old data, which unfortunately is is what's built into the CPI reports, the Consumer Price Index reports that you read about. So they're still seeing housing costs going up, which they were doing a year ago. Um, instead, of, instead of what's really happening today, which is that home prices, by and large, have plateaued uh, or in, in many markets are actually trending down a little bit. And, and rental rates uh, have, have done pretty much the same thing. And, and so, you know, if you look out uh, long term, when those numbers start to get built into the, the inflation numbers more accurately to what we're seeing today, uh, you can see that inflation should continue to go down, and, and I, I think there's probably at least one more Fed funds rate increase in the cards. Um, but if, if the inflation numbers keep going the direction they're going, I think the Fed may be able to take its foot off the gas,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: excuse me, off the brakes, and, and let the market uh, uh, kind of play out as inflation goes down.
1: Mm-hmm. So. That That would be
2: good for mortgage rates, by the way. Oh,
1: yes. (laughs) Trust me. (laughs) We're we're all looking forward to that. I I know, uh, like, like the, like the current rate for homeowners is somewhere around, you know, five and a half to six percent, depending on if you want a 30 year mortgage. But for real estate investors, it's a different number. (laughs) No, it's (laughs) actually
2: higher than that for consumers. (laughs) This morning, the rate, the published rate was 6.74 percent for a 30 year fixed rate loan. So it's it's actually tacked back up a little bit from a week ago,
3: mm.
2: uh, and yeah, if you're if you're an investor looking for a, a bridge loan or a, a long-term rental loan, uh, I I know that the rates like nine, ten, eleven percent are not out of question, depending on your lender and what kind of relationship you have with that lender. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's jumped quite a bit in the last year, much more than I think anybody could have forecast.
1: Okay. So before we move over into some of these, uh, foreclosure and price and inventory numbers, the big, the big question on everybody's lips that, that I know is about an actual recession, an actual people lose jobs, uh, companies shut down, uh, a recession. And I know that one of the things that, that one of the things that I keep hearing said, is that there is absolutely going to be a recession because of something called a yield curve inversion? Now, not being a securities person myself, I don't understand what that is or why it is thought to predict recessions.
2: Yeah, do we have more than an hour to? <laughs> um, this is this is the ultimate inside baseball conversation. First, let let me let me kind of. Join the chorus and say that I'm in the camp that says it's more likely than not that we are going to have a recession this year. I do not believe we're in one now. I think I think first quarter GDP numbers will probably be flat or a little little on the positive side. But but there there are two two indicators that suggest in to me a recession is likely. One is is the Fed itself. So if you go back to World War II and you look at the 11 times that the federal reserve has raised the fed funds rate to get inflation under control 8 of those 11 times they've overcorrected and steered the economy into a recession and and those were all times where they waited too long to start to address inflation where inflation gotten too high for them to to easily fix <clears throat> excuse me so they had to overcorrect which caused economic problems and led to a recession they waited way too long this time. They underestimated how severe the inflation problem was going to be. They have they have raised the Fed funds rate higher and more quickly than at any time in 50 years. Um, and and it's very likely you're you're talking to people in Cincinnati. I grew up in Pennsylvania. You learn there's a, a, a good way and a less good way to try and stop a car on an icy road. <clears throat> the the better way is you tap on the brake gently and quickly and come to a controlled stop on the side of the road. The, the less good way is you slam on the brakes and skid into a ditch. And and that's the, the latter of those is kind of what the Fed's had to do this time when it comes to inflation. Um, I believe, however, that all the other aspects of the economy continue to be strong. And so even if we have a recession, it will be fairly short and fairly mild, and we won't have huge numbers of people unemployed. The second reason I think there's likely to be a recession is this yield curve inversion you talked about. And the simplest way I can explain it is if you make a long-term investment, you would like your returns to be higher than if you make a short-term investment because there's more risk involved. So what economists do and what people in the bond market do is they track the yield on a two-year treasury note, a two-year bond, and they compare it to the yield on a 10-year bond. And historically, the 10-year bond has a higher yield because your your money's locked up for 10 years instead of two. Every now and then, these yields invert, and the yields on a two-year bond get higher than the yields on a 10-year bond. And that's an indication that the people that follow the bond market expect that there's going to be economic turmoil in the not-too-distant future. We've had a yield curve inversion that's relatively high and continuing for months now. And the last seven times we've seen the yield curves invert, uh, it's been followed by a recession. And yeah. there's just no reason to believe that this eighth time is going to be different than the last seven times. Mm-hmm. The bond market basically is predicting a recession. I should point out that the yield curve itself doesn't cause a recession, but it's an indicator that people who follow these things from an investment perspective are expecting to see one, and they usually guess right.
1: Sure, it's like it's like crowdsourcing the opinions of a lot of people who know more about it than I do to say, yeah, this "Is what we think is going to happen," and then it generally turns out. Well,
2: the, the Fed isn't saying it, but they're they're implying that they believe there's going to be a recession too. For uh, for Chairman Powell to talk about uh, staying the course, even though he knows it's going to cause pain. Uh, and for uh, the, the need to fight inflation, even if it does cause a recession, very, very unusual for a Fed chairman to use language like that if they're not anticipating a recession. And their unemployment target for the year—not not that they're hoping for this, but they believe that unemployment this year will probably peak at 4.7 or 4.8 percent. And and you don't go from 3.4 to 4.8 unless you're in a recessionary economy. So I. I I do believe that's likely to happen, but for your listeners to keep this in perspective and not start jumping off bridges anywhere, historically, if you're below 5% unemployment, it's considered to be a very, very strong economy. So even if we do go from 3.4, 3.5 to 4.7 or 4.8, it's difficult for the people who've lost those jobs, but it's not the end of the world from a, an economic standpoint. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we need to take another quick break. Uh, we're going to talk some of the more specific real estate statistics and leading indicators. When we come back, we're also going to take listener questions at 877 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talk- talking today, badly apparently, to Rick Sharga, who is a, my mouth's just not working today, who is a an analyst who actually runs a company that provides this sort of data and analysis to uh, the real estate and mortgage industry, and um, before we, before we jump into this conversation about the housing numbers, uh, just need to remind everybody who's listening that Cincinnati RIA's uh, nationwide online meeting is tomorrow night. And, uh, it's, you heard the online part, right? Anybody can't attend because it's on Zoom. Uh The early meeting is about why note buying is the best passive investment of 2023. That's going to be a panel of people who love note buying. So you're not going to hear anything from them other than you should be doing this instead of real estate. But they're also going to tell you about some of the trends that are happening in the performing and defaulted note worlds in 2023. Our 730 panel is our Women Who Rock the Real Estate World panel it's about eight women from all over the country who are in different, uh, different markets and different specialties, uh, short-term rentals, long-term rentals, wholesaling, retailing, group housing, um, private lending. We've got a, like a 24-year-old private lender <laughs> in that group, and they're going to be talking about, uh, what they see in the market and also about, uh, how to maybe deal with some of the challenges and take advantage of some of the benefits that come with being a woman in an industry that let's face it is still largely a male dominated industry. You can get your Zoom link for that at cincinnatirea.com. That's cincinnati r e i a.com and you know while I'm at it I'm just going to spell cincinnati. Because people seem to don't live here, seem to think there's two T's at the end. It's C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-R-E-I-A dot com. So, Rick, uh, we've, we've all seen the stuff in the newspapers and on the online, you know, things that pop up on our computer, whether we want them to or not, uh, that are talking about house prices and how, yeah, the rate of acceleration in-house prices has decreased so prices are still going up just not as fast as they used to but the thing that we really should be concerned about i think is housing affordability which is a different calculation let's talk about what's going on in housing affordability
2: it's amazing the impact that doubling mortgage rates can have on affordability isn't it Um, we, you know, we came out of a period where mortgage rates were historically low, and it felt like it almost didn't matter that home prices were going up 15%, 20% a year, depending on where you were in the country, because those 2.5%, 2.75% mortgage rates made it possible for people to have affordable monthly payments. Uh, according to Freddie Mac, last year was the first time in history when mortgage rates actually doubled in the calendar year.
3: Mm-hmm. And and they
2: didn't double in really just a calendar year. It was in a matter of months. So all of a sudden, potential home buyers, and that's true whether they were owner-occupants or investors, were looking at monthly mortgage payments that were up 45, 50, 60 percent compared to if they'd tried to buy the same house a year prior.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and it really just cratered affordability. Um, it, affordability is worse now than it's been. Even during the run-up to the Great Recession, that's how bad it, it, it is right now. And, and the market, candidly, just never had a chance to adjust. Normally, mortgage rates might go up gradually or home prices might go up gradually, and, and a buyer will kind of adapt. They'll, they'll move a little bit further out. They'll look for an older property, maybe a property that needs a little bit more work, Um but, you know, how do you adjust for a 50 percent increase in your monthly payment? I I don't know about you, but I, I didn't get my 50 percent raise <laughs> last year. Um, so it, it's been it's been difficult. And, and I think one of the things that it has um, extended that I I think a lot of us thought would would have slowed down by now is migration patterns across the country. So. Uh, after the first wave of the pandemic and and working from home became an option, we saw a lot of people move out of uh, high-cost, high-tax states into states that had a lower cost of living. So all of a sudden, everybody was moving to Idaho and Utah. Um, and, And that had started to slow down, but I think this new affordability issue is causing people to, again, look toward less expensive markets where they can uh, potentially afford to buy a house. I I, I, mean, I live in California. Um, the median price has been going down for the last few months, but it's still almost $800,000. And what I tell people is that what that means is neither of my kids will ever be able to buy a house in California. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can work from home, they might not have to. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they can go to a neighboring state and actually become a homeowner. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's an interesting scenario. Home prices are slowing down. Uh, they're going down in some markets I do believe mortgage rates have peaked for this cycle i'm I'm hopeful that we don't get back up to that seven percent we saw last year uh, and and by the end of the year we're back down in the fives and you and I talked in the last segment about wage growth continuing so if you put those three things together that really is what constitutes affordability is home prices financing costs and wages.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And
2: they all at least appear to be moving gradually in the right direction. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And just to, just to give listeners some perspective here, that you know the radio is a little bit of a tough uh, medium because we can't like draw a chart on the wall and have have folks be able to to look at it, but. The last time that home prices, uh, the affordability index was as bad as it is right now was way back in like 1984, which happened to have been another time when there was high inflation, uh, high, high mortgage interest rates and so on. And it's been above the 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 ideal place where we want it to be. Well, no, the ideal place we want it to be is like way that we want the affordability index to be like two hundred, because that means lots and lots of people can afford a house. But one hundred is kind of thought to be like this is this is the place at which the average person can afford the average house on the average income, right? And it has dropped below that 100 line for the first time since, gosh, it looks like might have dipped, dipped a little bit below it in 90 or 91. But this is kind of like we haven't seen this in a long time.
2: No. I mean, look, home prices were going up faster than wages for several years. That was offset by low mortgage rates. Uh, the mortgage rates climbed. The home prices didn't, didn't fall through the floor. Uh and so affordability became an issue. And and for those of your listeners who are the ones expecting to see huge crash in home prices, I, I don't see that happening either. Um there's still demand. We have the largest cohort of young adults between the ages of twenty-five and thirty-four in history. Uh that's prime age for forming a household. The the average age of a first-time home buyer last year was thirty-three. Um, So you have a a demographic tailwind pushing the housing market and you have over 70 percent of people with a mortgage sitting on a mortgage that's four percent or lower who are not at all inclined to sell their house and take on a six and a half percent mortgage unless they absolutely have to. Mm -hmm. So we're we're still going to have limited inventory available for people who want to buy a house. Uh, The realtors that I've been talking to say they're still getting multiple offers, but it's not 10 or 15 like they were getting a year ago, but it's still two or three. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I, I, I think home prices will come down in some of the markets that were you know way overpriced, whether it's coastal California, the Pacific Northwest, individual markets like Austin and Boise and Phoenix and Las Vegas. Um, but but by and large, I think nationally, you're going to look at a very marginal decline in home prices this year, probably less than five percent. In some markets, and by the way, markets in in Ohio, like Columbus, might be one of those markets you 're going to continue to see prices go up, but just at a much, much lower rate mm-hmm. but anywhere where you see population growth and job growth you 're likely to see home prices continue to be pretty strong
1: mm-hmm. and uh, this is this is the point at which I always have to remind listeners of something uh, th- th- that five percent drop in Overall house prices is pretty common for these little normal short, you know, thirteen month recessions. Yeah. That's that's a very typical yeah. number. We saw that in, you know, two thousand one after the tech wreck, and you know, it, it's it's a normal number. But that's not reflective of what's happening to the kinds of sellers that we are typically working with. We're not working with the retail seller who can just, eh, if I don't get my price, I don't have to move. If I don't get my price, I can wait for it. If I don't get my price, I can add a hot tub and see if I can get my price. That's not, that's not the, (laughs) that's not the, that's not the seller we're typically working with. We're typically working with the seller who must sell. There's a foreclosure Mm -hmm. sale coming. There's a tax sale coming. There's a divorce pending. Somebody's sick. Somebody's moving into a nursing home. Like they, they need to get rid of the house now. And my experience is that, that, in that market of what we will call motivated sellers, house prices actually drop a lot more during a recession because there's fewer people to buy those homes and supply and That's demand.
2: There's, <laughs> there's, yep. There's, there's less competition for, for those homes. Affordability has a lot to do with that. The other thing that has something to do with that is the big investors. Uh, are kind of keeping their powder dry right now and they're on the sidelines largely as well.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: the eye buyers, the, the, the companies <laughs> who were coming in and paying cash for your house and planning to resell it have taken a beating. Uh-huh. Um, Zillow exited the market after losing 325 million dollars in a quarter. Uh, Open door just changed its entire management team because they managed to lose a billion dollars. Um, and so you know those those if you're looking for motivated sellers, you know If you happen to be in a market where open door or offer was was actively buying a few months ago they 're probably sitting on a few hundred properties that they 'd like to get rid of mm-hmm. um, The other thing that 's interesting is is you know new home builders tend to act a little bit like motivated sellers uh, on occasion as well if you're if you 're one of those builders and you have five or six properties sitting vacant in a development that 's otherwise sold out they 're costing you money every month and they're they're likely to to offer concessions or or buy down points uh on on your financing or even just discount pricing. So I think you're gonna see a little bit more volatility in new home prices over the next uh year than, than you're gonna see necessarily on on existing homes. But you're right, motivated sellers uh will will often discount and this is a good time to be in that market because a lot of those motivated sellers have a ton of equity. So even if they have to discount, it's not like they're going to be underwater when they sell. Uh, they're going to be able to sell below market and still walk away with money in their pocket. That becomes kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now let's 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 take a second and talk about the builders because uh, I mean you just mentioned we've got this demographic bubble happening. We've got mm-hmm. wages coming up, interest rates expected to go down. The problem is we can't we can't wage hike and interest rate our way out of the basic problem which is there aren't enough houses there weren't enough houses yeah, going into the pandemic and the you know. home building kind of fell off the cliff when interest rates started to like, like home starts just and even applications for home starts just just fell off the cliff now right before the show mike uh, read a, a press release that said that uh, home builder sentiment, which is another word we need to be careful of. Yep. When we're talking about statistics was up 7% this month. So are we going to see the level of home building that we need to happen to take care of this housing cr- crunch?
2: You know, my daughter was little. She wanted a unicorn and, and believed every year she was going to get one. Um, I feel the same way about housing starts. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not going to fill the need by by any any reasonable stretch home builders have been under building for a decade
3: mm-hmm.
2: um they're not going to make that up overnight we have started to see pretty healthy levels of, of housing starts uh which again for your listeners is when when ground is broken on construction of a new property and we've seen building permits um actually increasing too and then to your point um when buying patterns slowed down drastically after mortgage rates doubled, the builders got the memo, and starting in July, we saw housing starts go down by double digits on a year-over-year basis every month for the rest of the year. Uh, Permit numbers uh, went down pretty significantly, and and as that was happening, builder sentiment plunged. So a 7% increase is good. It's going in the right direction, but it's still – If you look at the overall numbers, they're still relatively low uh, compared to what's considered to be really positive builder sentiment. The builders are also still kind of licking their wounds from the Great Recession. What most people don't realize is that right before we had the housing crash, we had about a 13-month supply of homes available for sale. In a normal market, a healthy market, there's about a six-month supply. So we had more than twice the supply of homes that the market could normally absorb, uh and, and that oversupply was one of the things that led to the crash. In today's market, we're looking at about a two and a half month supply of homes available for sale across the country. And and it's just it's not enough to meet uh the, the anticipated demand. And most building right now is actually being geared toward multifamily units.
3: So mm-hmm.
2: there's a record number of apartment units coming on on the market uh during the course of twenty twenty three. Which will certainly have implications for, for rental investors, but it's not going to solve the uh, the shortage of yeah, owner occupied housing. We're
1: also not going to apartment our way out of the out of the housing uh, crunch. So that's a that's no, a-
2: no but, but having having more affordable rent on apartments would give those renters the opportunity to put more money away for a down payment. Uh, now that, that adds to more demand, which you know again exacerbates the, the inventory problem but we're we're in a really weird situation a, a year ago where um, rental rates were going up in some markets faster than home prices were
3: mm-hmm. uh,
2: and and it it really made it almost impossible for somebody to to move from renter to owner uh, just because they they simply didn't have enough discretionary income to put aside mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's a it's a problem that we are definitely going to have to figure out how to solve as a country without getting the government back into the housing market, which uh, every time that's happened, it has not turned out quite the way they expected it was going to. Um, Let's take a couple of uh, listener questions. Uh, This one's kind of a, a, a general demographic question from Anera. She says, how much effect on the employment unemployment is that when the boomers retire, the generation behind them Gen X is much smaller. Does this mean that no matter what the Fed does, we're going to have an imbalance in open positions? Uh, and is that going to continue to put pressure on wages?
2: That's a really interesting question. Um, and and the, the, the answer is probably not. Um, the, 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 the fact that a boomer retires doesn't mean that you need to take the next oldest employee and, and plug them <laughs> into that spot. Um, and and there 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 are a lot of employees that have been kind of waiting to to move up that corporate ladder a little bit, because boomers have stayed employed longer than prior generations in a lot of in a lot of professional uh, professional jobs. So no, I I, I don't you know the, the millennial generation is actually bigger than the boomers. So as as they move through the marketplace as well, I think you see uh, you see a, a no shortage of of you know. Perspective employees moving moving into those jobs.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so this may not be a question you can answer in one minute, which is how long we've got left, but it's so interesting, I want to ask it anyway. JC from Las Vegas says, do you have any information about the relative equity of owners who are in pre-foreclosure in this cycle versus previous cycle, and the previous cycles, and does uh, more equity on behalf of of the owners that are in pre-foreclosure mean there will be a completely different amount of completed foreclosures or REOs than there have been in the past?
2: I think that listener saw me speak somewhere. (laughs) Um, 92% of homeowners in foreclosure today have positive equity, uh, which is unheard of um, and, and, and very, very different than where we were entering the great recession when a third of all homeowners were underwater on their loans, and just about everybody in foreclosure was upside down. Uh, about a third of, of homeowners in foreclosure have between 20 and 50% equity. Uh, another 15% or so have between 50 and 75%, and, and another 20% have more than 75% equity in their homes. This gives all of those homeowners the opportunity to sell their home at a profit rather than losing all that equity at the foreclosure sale.
3: Mm-hmm. And what we're
2: seeing already is fewer properties going from that initial notice of foreclosure to the foreclosure auction. Uh, and the properties going to auction are selling at a much higher rate. We can we can talk about this after the break in more detail if you like. But, but this cycle, if you're an investor looking for foreclosures and you're waiting for the bank repossessed properties, the REOs, It's probably exactly the wrong strategy to pursue because this cycle is going to behave completely different than prior cycles have.
1: Interesting. Well, Rick, I am afraid we are out of time. This has been a fascinating discussion. I definitely want to have you back to uh, talk again as, as things proceed over the next year. Uh, you've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. My host, my guest today has been Rick Sharga, founder and CEO of the C.J. Patrick Company. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.
2: Support comes from Ellsworth & Associates, a dedicated team of accounting professionals serving greater Cincinnati and northern Kentucky with over 25 years of experience.